Welcome to the First United Methodist Church. We hope our sermon broadcast will bless you. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it had been written by the prophet And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him... Bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's a familiar story. Perhaps in some ways too familiar. So we think we know it. And we think we know its meaning, but I wonder. And I found comfort in discovering that other wiser folks than me have also wondered too. I'm speaking, of course, of the story of the wise men, or kings, or magi, or astrologers, or Zoroastrians, depending on which translation of the Bible you use or which commentator you choose. I hope you're not too attached to the notion they were kings. Because the vast majority of biblical scholars will tell you they were not kings. That's been handed down to us through the years because it helped reinforce the idea that the church had authority over all the monarchies of centuries past. But biblical scholars will tell you that the Greek word used in the original text was magoi, which is better translated magi. Of course, that may unsettle some of us because it's easily associated with the words magic and magician. They're also referred to as astrologers by some, which makes some amount of sense. As observers of the cosmos, they would have paid particular attention to the movement of the stars. And the arrival of a new and brightly shining star surely would have caught their attention and set them to wondering and then perhaps wandering. 
In the end, it may be our best choice to stay with the wise men because the point is not so much that they were specifically kings or magicians or astrologers, but that they were learned people, intelligent, well-read, who sought after God. And as such, their journey of faith sets an example for all of us. For those who would seek to find God must be willing to journey in faith. How many were there? You say, how many? Three. Wrong. We even know the, we know the three names though, right? Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. But again, that's a comfortable tradition handed down that has no real root in scripture or history. Indeed, in much of the early church and in some parts of the church still today, it is said there were 12 wives once who visited the Christ child. There was a line. It is said 12 visited Jesus, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, which sounds quite reasonable. But in the end, the reality is we just don't know. If you look closely at the scripture for today, it gives no indication how many they numbered. And maybe the number isn't important anyway. Maybe what's important is simply noticing that we should travel with others in this journey of faith, that we should be a part of a community rather than traveling solo. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from those who find spiritual benefits in spending time in solitude. Lord knows we could all benefit from time alone with God now and then. But we also need the give and take and collective wisdom of a community, the gifts and insights of others, be it three or 300. The assumption of the number three, of course, is simply because the scripture says there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and we simply can't imagine someone coming and not bringing something to offer, one gift per person. But that's not always the case, is it? Who among us hasn't at some time been given a Christmas gift by someone for whom we had not bought something in exchange? Much has been made of the gifts. Some say they too represent certain things. Tradition says the gold represents the royalty of Christ, his kingship, his earthly authority, because gold is an appropriate gift for a king. Frankincense is said to represent the divinity and spiritual authority of Jesus because it is used in worship and would be an appropriate gift for a priest. And finally, myrrh is said to represent his sacrificial death because it's used in the preparation of a body for burial. And it may also represent his humanity and his kinship with all who die. But in the end, again, does it really matter what the individual gifts may represent? Or is it more important to recognize that they were offerings? Perhaps what matters in the end is not what's given or how much or even why, but simply that the gift was offered freely from the heart. Perhaps these were the best gifts the wise ones had to offer in exchange. Exchange. You wonder, where does it say anything about an exchange? It, it doesn't, of course. But isn't it written between the lines? The gifts of the wise men, and by the way, the more accurate translation of the Greek word is actually offerings. Their offerings are in response to something they'd already received, which was good news. The gift of faith 
and more to the point, the gift of God in Jesus Christ, which is why, in the end, the gifts and their value and number really have only marginal meaning. Because when laid before the gift of God in Christ, given to all of us freely, when measured against God's gift to us in Jesus, they have no comparable value. None. And the only meaning is the meaning they have within our own hearts as we, too, offer what little we have in recognition of God's priceless gifts to us. For whatever we give pales in comparison to what we've been given, that which is ours in Jesus. Let me share a story with you by Gary Foreman, who perhaps in his own way reveals his recognition of the priceless treasure that is ours in Christ. There are those who will tell you that a dream is the subconscious trying to get out. Then again, there are those who say you shouldn't eat pepperoni pizza before bed. What I do know was that it seems so real that I wouldn't be surprised to find a snapshot in the family photo album someday. Just like the famous story, it was indeed the night before Christmas, and everyone was asleep in their beds, and like all good Christmas stories, it was cool, so I was wrapped snugly under a blanket. I drifted off to sleep, and then it began. Well, let me just tell it to you as it occurred. I awoke in the middle of the night and was drawn downstairs. Trust me. I'm the last guy to try and sneak a peek at Christmas presents, but there was an irresistible urge to take a look at the packages under the tree. When I got down on my hands and knees, I spotted a beautifully wrapped package that I hadn't noticed before. It had my name on it. Then I did something that's completely uncharacteristic of me. I opened the gift. Right then, in the middle of the night, in the dark, all by myself, But that wasn't the biggest surprise. What was inside the box is what was truly remarkable. I don't know how to describe it except to say that the box was filled with joy. Joy. It was as if my heart had been filled with an overflowing happiness that I couldn't explain or contain. I just knew that I was smiling. The gift was a gift of happiness and joy. No sooner had I closed the first box when I noticed another. The contents of this box, too, were most unusual. When I opened it, it was as if it contained a window to heaven. I could look into the box and see an incredible distance. Everything was clean and bright. I reached into the box, and there was no bottom to stop my hand. It was as if I tried to step into the box, I'd have stepped right into heaven. What a wondrous gift, I thought. And then another package caught my eye. It had brown paper with a white ribbon. When opened, it displayed a piece of rope about 14 inches long. It was tied in a tight knot. The knot looked as if it had been tied years ago. I didn't think it could be unknotted without any amount of effort. But then I picked it up. And to my astonishment, it unknotted itself and returned to its original form of a flexible piece of rope. I wondered about it, and then before my mind's eye, there played a panorama of things that people there that, that were once tightly bound, which had now been miraculously set free. So they were singing and dancing with joyful abandon, 
But even that wasn't the last of the gifts. There was a box wrapped in impressive blue paper. I unwrapped it and looked inside. It contained an embrace. An embrace. Not just any embrace, but a hug that radiated power and love. It was as if a long-lost brother had been found and wanted to show just how much he loved and missed me. Somehow I just knew that the feeling would never leave me. But there was still one more gift. Yet for some reason I hesitated before opening it. It was oblong, about 14 inches in length. Eight wide, six high, a glossy white paper with fastidiously neat corners, white ribbon and a white bow such as none I'd ever seen. Looking back now, I'm not sure, but I think that my hands trembled a bit when I opened it. And as I lifted the lid, I distinctly remember a sharp gasp escaped my lips, for inside was a manger with a baby. And the purest light I'd ever seen emanated from the child and filled my senses. I gazed at him, and my eyes began to tear. This was a gift of infinite value. Never again would I be given anything so precious. After that, I remember nothing until morning until my children woke me up and dragged me downstairs by the hand with the usual excitement of children on Christmas morning. I know you'll think this story a bit crazy. I do too. And yet, even though none of the presents were still under the Christmas tree that next morning, it felt as if I possessed each of those gifts and had them hidden in my heart. And there was a deep, and abiding sense of peace and joy in my soul, which is still with me to this very day. Here and now, dearly beloved, that feeling can be ours today as well because Jesus is always already here for each and every one of us if we will simply open ourselves up to receive the gifts God offers us in Christ, who demands no gold, no frankincense, no myrrh, or anything else in all creation except for one very important thing, our hearts. Because that's all he really wants from us. What he wants from us is us. No strings attached. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we give thanks and praise to you for your life among us and within us, for the gifts of peace and joy and love and hope that are ours as your disciples. Help us to open our hearts more widely this day. Help us in this coming new year to put you in the center of our lives. We pray in the power and strength of your name. And all God's people said, Amen.